The following message was recorded at Christ Church in Bartlett, Tennessee. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.ccbartlett.org. This morning, so God, speak clearly to us this morning for your fame and for our joy. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, how was your Christmas? Good? Good? Ours was fantastic, uh, but I have news for you. It's over, all right? How many of you have, your Christmas tree is gone. It's already gone. Anybody? Mine, Christmas Day night, right? So Christmas Day Eve, right? We got home, and we had so, like, we had trash bags full of toys, all right, for our kids. And so we looked at our house, and we said, tree, you've got to go. So Christmas Day night, if you'd driven by my house, you would have seen the tree on the side of the road, sayonara, right? Like, it is gone. It's over, right? That, that part's over. So what's next? What do, we, what do we do next? What's the next big thing? Well, New Year's, right? New Year's is the next big thing. And at New Year's, what do we, what do we often do? We often set resolutions. Some of you, maybe you're working on those now, right? Maybe you're really organized. You write those down. You keep them in your phone or something. But we work on resolutions. And typically, resolutions, uh, they're usually about the same thing. They're usually about weight or money, right? Isn't that, isn't that right? They're either about weight or money. And usually, they fade over time. You know what I'm talking about, right? In January, your resolution sounds really different than what your resolution really is in, like, July, right? Like, I'll give you some examples. Like, like maybe your resolution's money. And so in January, your resolution is, I'll not spend my money frivolously. And then in February, it changes. I'll, you know what? I'll, I'll pay off my bank loan promptly. And then in March, it's I'll pay off my bank loans promptly. And then in April, I'll begin making a strong effort to be out of debt by next year. And then in May, you say, I'll be totally out of debt by 2017. And then in June, I'll try to pay off the debt, that, the debt interest by 2018. And then finally in July, you say, I'll try to be out of the country by 2019. You know what I'm talking about? It just fades. Or maybe it's weight for you. And so in January, I'll get my weight down below 180. In February, it's I'll watch my calories until I get below 190. In March, I'll follow my new diet religiously until I get to 200. And by April, I will try to develop a realistic attitude about my weight. And then in May, I'm going to work out five days a week. And then in June, I'm going to work out three days a week. And then in July, I will really try my best to drive by a gym every week, right? Like, and so that's what happens with our resolutions. And why do we even make these resolutions? They're silly. Why do we even make them? Probably because it's one of the only times of the year that we really evaluate where we are and we set a goal and then we try to line up our lives with that goal. Isn't that true? It's probably one of the only times of the year where everybody universally takes an honest look at themselves, usually, an honest look at themselves, and they say, you know what? This is the goal I want, and I'm going to line up my life. I'm going to take whatever actions I have to take to line up my life with that goal. And I think that that's also helpful spiritually, right? We already talked about ways. We talk about money, and, and I don't know, maybe you make relationship goals. Maybe you make education goals or other things like that. But I think it's also helpful for us spiritually to make a goal like that, to look at our, to look at our lives, make a, uh, an honest uh, check and evaluation of ourselves, and then to look at a goal, where do I want to be, and line up our lives with that. So what is our goal? Well, here's my goal, and, and, and probably I hope your goal for 2015, and here it is. It's really simple. My goal is this. I want to live a Jesus-centered life life. That's what I want, right? That's what I want for myself. Anybody else out there? Any other believers out there? That's what you want? I want my life to be marked by living a Jesus-centered life. And I didn't just pull that out of the thin air. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, 
Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me, right? I don't want it to be about me in 2015. I don't want my selfish attitudes to run my life. I don't want my, my goal in and of itself to be just to make myself happy. I want to make him happy, right? I want my life to be a Jesus-centered life. So how do we do that, right? Anybody, anybody with me on that? You want a Jesus-centered life? Can I see? This is how you raise your hand. All right, fantastic. All right, good job. Well done. We want a Jesus-centered life. So this morning, I want to figure out how do we do that? What does that look like, right? So if you're like, you know what? I don't know if I want a Jesus-centered life. Well, maybe listen to it. Maybe you want it. Or maybe just, I don't know, play Sudoku or whatever you got to do. But that's what we're talking about. How do I have that Jesus-centered life in 2015? Well, our answer is going to come from the book of Philippians. If you have a Bible, turn to the book of Philippians. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some under your chairs. You can use your smartphone. Uh, you can look it up there, download a Bible app, whatever you got to do. But look out, uh, look up Philippians. And um, what part of Philippians? Well, well, all of it. Today, we're actually going to look at the entire book of Philippians because this letter from Paul, um, it's, a, it's a letter of thanks to this church in, in Philippi for supporting him, but also it's a letter just clearly showing us uh, elements of a Jesus-centered life, right? And each chapter shows us that. So we're going to, each point there on your little outline, those four points, each one of those coincides with one of the chapters. So, so we're going to see in each chapter of Philippians, what a Jesus-centered life looks like, all right? So a couple of point, uh, points of context before we get to this letter. I don't want to just drop this letter on you. Um, so this is this, the Lord's Church at Phyllis, uh, uh, Philippi, excuse me, Philippi, wow, I'll get there, was established by Paul on his second evangelistic journey in about 52 AD. Uh, Philippi did not have enough Jewish citizens to have a synagogue, so there was a meeting place for prayer just outside the city where Paul found Lydia and a group of women on the Sabbath engaged in worship. And then, and you can see it for yourself, in Acts chapter 16, he preached the first gospel sermon on the continent of Europe, which is pretty incredible, and Lydia and her household became the first converts. And they were later joined by a really strange bunch of people like the like the jailer who was keeping Paul in prison in Acts chapter 16. You can read that as well. And so Paul revisited the city on at least two other occasions. And so this church, they supported Paul financially and prayerfully, and it held a very, very special place in his heart. And this letter is a, it's a thank you letter for all of their support, uh, continued support, no matter what's going on with him, no matter all the opposition that comes against him, and there was a lot of it, they were always supporting him. They always loved him, provided for him, and it's also an encouragement to live a Jesus-centered life. Now, let me throw a disclaimer out there. Philippians is fantastic, right? Um, it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, Randy, the campus pastor at our other campus in Arlington, he preached a, a sermon series on Philippians, and it took him months to get through. It's fantastic. There's so much in Philippians. It's just four short chapters, but it's fantastic, so I highly recommend you leave here today and go read it. Please don't go, hey, we listened to Grant talk for 40 minutes. I got Philippians, all right? Like, no, you don't, all right? Like, go read it. It's fantastic. It's worth your time, okay? So uh, let's get started. Four ways Jesus should be central to our lives. If we want to live a Jesus-centered life, here are four ways using the book of Philippians. Number one, Jesus should be the purpose of our lives, should be the purpose of our lives. Now, I'm going to read you from chapter one. We're going to look at verse 19. Before we get there, remember, Paul's in prison while he's writing this, all right? Understand that context. Paul is in prison. As you read these words, he's sitting in jail writing this. Look at verse 19. 
Well, I guess back up to 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's talking about his imprisonment. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. If you look back there, look back in verse 20. As always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So at all times, that's what Paul's saying, as always, at all times, there's nothing off limits. Everything about me will honor Christ. That's what I'm about, right? He is my purpose. Everything I do honors Christ. What does it mean to honor Christ? Well, I don't know what your Christmas day is like. We have, um, I have, I have four kids, and uh, and we have uh, uh, in-laws in town, right? So, so my parents live in town and her parents live in town, and so Christmas Day is a marathon, all right? It is an absolute marathon. So Christmas Eve, we came to church, then we went to one of the in-laws, and so the kids didn't get in bed in time, and then Christmas Day happens, and and, uh, and Angela always wakes up early because she's just so excited. She can't wait to see what Santa brought her, and so she's like, she gets up and like gets all the kids up, and uh, and so we come downstairs, and we do that thing, and then we got to run to get to my parents' house or her parents' house. I really don't remember. It's all a blur, and uh, they open a bunch of presents, and then, of course, they don't take naps, and then we go to the other parent's house, and then they turn into gargoyles at some point in the night, right? And it just gets, it gets tough. It is, it is just absolutely crazy. It's awesome. It's fantastic, and I love every second of it, but it's absolutely nuts. And, um, and so I'll give you an example of my kids honoring me. Um, so, so there was this um, I, I married, my wife is, uh, is, is of Italian descent, and they have a different volume when they speak. You know what I'm talking about? This is their whisper right here, all right? Like, this is their whisper. And so I remember we went to their house, and my kids pick up on that. And so, like, their volume just got louder and louder and louder till eventually they spoke to one another in what can only be described as just shrill yelling, all right? Like, that's it. Like, that was the way they talked to each other. And I had had it. I was done with it. And so I called all the kids together, and I said, you three, right? The five-month-old, he doesn't so much talk that much. He, he's more of a reader and thinker. But anyway, so I said to him, like, look, no more yelling, all right? No more yelling. There's no reason for it. No more yelling. But Papa, I know Papa. Don't worry about that. No more yelling, all right? Just you guys. We'll just talk to each other. If, if you have a problem, you come tell me what's going on. We'll handle it. No big deal. And then it's, yes, Daddy. Yes, Daddy. All right. And they go on, right? So my four-year-old and my, and my two-year-old daughter, they, they go over this way, and, and my other two-year-old, he stays here, which was a great plan. Stay away from the other ones. And so my other two-year-old, there's no yelling. Like, everything's cool. Like, Jude's cool. And he's just sitting there. He's playing with his Play-Doh, and everything's great. And then from the other room, I just, I hear my son and my daughter, which sounds like, have you ever put two cats in a bag, right? Have you ever done that? Because that's what it sounded like, right? And so all of a sudden, there's just all of this yelling and this screaming. And I go in there, and I go, what is going on, right? And, my, and Max is like, you're screaming. And I'm like, yeah, but no, that's not the same thing. And so, you know, my kids, Jude was honoring me. He obeyed me, and it made me happy. It pleased me what he was doing, and that honored me. My other two, eh, not so much, right? They disobeyed me. They did exactly what I asked them not to do. It didn't make me happy. It made me very unhappy, and it, it was dishonoring to their father. They didn't obey me. And so what does it mean to honor Christ? We make him happy. 
We, we don't make him unhappy. We make him happy. And what makes him happy? Obedience makes him happy. Sin doesn't, right? So honor him by being obedient. Make him happy. That, that's what we want to do. I want to honor Christ in my body. That's what Paul's saying. In everything that I do, I want to make him happy, right? I want to do something that, that, that obeys him, that lines up with who he is. I want to make him happy. And Paul's purpose, again, is to make the Lord happy, to honor him. And everything he did was marked by this. Everything he did was marked by this. I want to honor the Lord. I want to make him happy. And in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, Jesus said this, and I think Paul's life was, again, marked by this. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. So I keep saying marked. I mean that, that purpose marks you. That's what I mean. Purpose marks everything that you do. And you say, what in the world are you talking about? I'll give you an example. Anybody um, in high school, maybe while you were in high school, you had friends who were wrestlers, or maybe you wrestled in high school. Anybody? Anybody wrestle? It's okay. You really admitted it? Cool. Anyway, so like maybe you did that. Well, I remember the day that they went to the competition, like the day they had their, their little wrestling match or whatever, when they put the, the super manly singlets on and then rolled around together. Uh, so but the day they did that, like they would come to school like with trash bags on, you get the, anybody else? Like trash bags on. Like trash. For trash, they would wear that, and then they would be spitting into a Gatorade bottle the whole day. Anybody see this? It's disgusting. There's something wrong with you. But they would do that over and over again. And like when we would go to lunch, no lunch for them. And they would sit there and they'd spit in that bottle. And they'd be like, I got to wrestle later. And I'm like, you're going to pass out later. That's what you're going to do. And so anyway, like they would do that. And the whole day, it was about that everything they did, every action they took, every place they went was marked by, I've got this competition, right? I've, I've got this purpose that I have to fulfill. And again, purpose marks everything that you do. And our purpose should be to make the Lord happy. That means in everything about us, it should be marked with that goal, to make the Lord happy, right? And that's what, and following what Jesus said, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, everything. So think about your life. You want to live a Jesus-centered life in 2015? Think about it. Are you marked by making the Lord happy? How you spend your time? Remember, all of it, how you spend your money, the entertainment choices you make, your speech, your attitudes, your affections, all of it. Is it marked by making the Lord happy? Is Jesus really the purpose of your life? The second thing, Jesus should be the pattern of our lives. Look at verse three in chapter two. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you not look uh, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by, making the form, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So purpose marks you. And now this pattern will mold you, right? We want to be molded by this pattern of Jesus. Look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So this is the mind of Christ. We want to be molded by the example of Jesus. And I think he molds us in two specific ways that we see here in the scripture as we follow the pattern of Jesus for our lives. One is the humble love to serve others. That's the first pattern that we, we're molding our lives after is the humble love to serve others. Look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition 
Christian is to advance your own agenda, right? So don't do anything that only helps you get your way and do nothing out of conceit, which is, which is vanity or vainglory. So don't do anything that just makes you look good or, or serves your ego. So, so don't do anything that only serves my selfish agenda or my ego. But, but hang on, what if I'm trying to edge someone out for a promotion? You know, it's really competitive. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit. But what if, I, what if I just really don't like the music that's played in worship, right? I have my, a strong preference. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit. But what if it just affects a handful of people? What if it's not that big a deal? Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit. What if everyone in my office works like that? Like that's the atmosphere of the job that I have. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit. What's the alternative? Keep reading verse three. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Are you kidding me, Paul? Are you joking right now? Count others more significant than myself. You might say, that's really hard. I can't really wrap my head around that. Can I get a little bit of help here, Paul? Keep going in verse four. I think there's help here. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We naturally look at our own interests. Isn't that true, right? We naturally look to our own interests. I'm gonna take care of me, right? Like when we, uh, uh, when we make our meals for our kids and, and we, we sit them at their little table and, and we put that first plate down, that like the first kid who gets that plate isn't going, excuse me, mom, my brother and my sister, could you please serve them too, right? No, 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 they're eating. They don't care, right? Like I could not put another plate down for the other ones. They could sit there and beg. They don't care. They're going to take care of themselves. The other day I went to O'Charlie's and we sat down and, and, uh, and, and I love O'Charlie's, but they, they just didn't serve us. Like, like literally the waitress, the waiter never came to our table. And we're sitting there. Someone brought us rolls, but no one took our order. And you know what? I, I finally, I grabbed somebody and said, excuse me, we haven't been taken care of. Now, now, if she had asked me, have the other tables around you been taken care of? No idea. No idea, right? But you know what? I'm going to get taken care of. I noticed I'm going to take care of my needs, right? I mean, when, we, uh, when we do the help group, we do our feeding ministry once a month. Uh, we push the basket through the gym, and, and they, they pick up the food and stuff like that. It is not uncommon that as you push that basket, people are looking at their food, and they're trying to look at other people's baskets. They're looking on the table, and they're trying to make sure that they've got everything that everybody else has, right? So if they catch a, a corner of something that looks like, that looks like Doritos. I didn't get Doritos, right? That's a normal thing. And you say, well, oh my gosh. No, that's normal. We take care of ourselves. We look out for our own interests. We can wrap our heads around that. We naturally do that. That's a natural thing. But then here's what he's saying. So when you look out for your own interests, that's okay. People do that, but also look to the interests of others. So when you think about your own interests, attach other people's interests to yours. Here's what I mean. Like when you want your preference considered, as you're thinking about your own preference, think at the same time, hey, if I'm thinking about my preference, then other people have preferences as well. And what the scripture tells me is that they're of equal, if not greater merit than mine. And when you want people to be patient with you, think about, you know what? People probably want the same thing from me. When we did the, uh, the help group last time, I'll tell you someone who exemplified this. Uh, I was pushing a basket for this guy and and as we're going through the line, um, he was turning food down. You ever heard somebody do that? They come to get like free food because they need food and they're turning food down. And I was going, what are you doing? No, this is for you. And he's like, no, nah, I, don't, I don't want that. And I'm going, I don't understand, man. Like, like you came here because you need food. We're trying to give you food and you're turning some of it away. And he said, well, I, I either can't eat that or, or I, don't, I know I, I won't fix anything with that. And, and so you know what? I know that there are people behind me who will probably need that, who probably would want that, who probably can eat that. And so I'm not gonna take it. Isn't that awesome? What is that? He's looking at his own interests. He didn't turn down all the food. 
He took what he needed, but what did he do? He put the interest of others ahead of his as well. Like he said, you know what? If I have needs, then they have needs. And I want them taken care of as much as I want myself taken care of. And that's the pattern Jesus set up for us, to humbly love and serve others. The second one, the second pattern is the submission of Jesus to the Father. That's the second pattern we should follow. Look at verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, all right? So obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Lord asks us to do really difficult things as we follow him. He asks us not to serve our own ego and put others first. That's super hard, right? He asks us not to seek revenge, but to bless and pray for those who hurt us. That's incredibly difficult. He asks us to deny ourselves every day, to say, you know what? What you want most, uh, uh, it doesn't matter. All those, those selfish attitudes, you put those to death and you follow me. That's incredibly difficult. But Jesus displays a pattern of obedience to the Father in, extreme, in the face of extreme difficulty. And what is the face of difficulty he faced? Was it what he wanted, all these other things? No. It was the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was obedient to the Father even in the face of death, in the face of disgrace and loneliness and excruciating pain, in the face of God's wrath. Jesus showed us an example of extreme and perfect obedience. And God will never ask us to be obedient like that. Not like that. Sure, he might ask you to be obedient in suffering. Sure. He might even ask you to be obedient to the point of death. But death on the cross, taking the wrath of God for the world's sins, I don't think so. Only one man did that, and that's Jesus, and it's done, right? So Jesus shows us this example of extreme uh, obedience. And so now there's nothing, there's nothing too extreme that, that God's going to call us to. There's nothing so extreme that we can't do it. So for example, forgiving, like offering forgiveness to the monster you swore you would never forgive what they've done to you and what they've done to your family, that's not too extreme in light of what Jesus has done for us. The swallowing your pride and seeking reconciliation with that person you swore you'd never speak to again, that's not too extreme in light of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Having that difficult conversation about Jesus with that person you, knew, you know you need to talk to, that's not too extreme in light of what Jesus has done lovingly confronting that brother or sister because of that blatant sin in their life that's stealing their joy not too extreme. Confessing your sin to somebody because you know you need to. Keeping it secret, just giving it power. You're not getting over it. That's not too extreme. Getting help with a compulsion or an addiction. Giving up your money, your possessions. Remaining sexually pure in an impure culture. Waking up early to spend time with God. None of these things are more extreme than what, what Jesus uh, showed us by dying for us on the cross. So are you putting a limit on your obedience? Is there something that you're drawing the line in the sand over? Like, is, is there something that you know right now, like you're saying, no, I'm, no, I'm not going to do it. Like, this is mine over here. I'm not going to do that. That's too much. That's too far. To pattern your life after Jesus, to be molded to his pattern means complete obedience. And that's like, that's like, that's an impossible task, isn't it? It is an impossible task. It absolutely is. But check this out. Look at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You might be looking at some, something that you need to be obedient in, something that seems so extreme, so so much bigger than you, and you're going, God, I can't do it. Here's what the scripture says. You don't have to. He will. 
Like you keep working at it. You keep giving him your all. And here's what it says in verse Verse 13, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He will come alongside you, and he will strengthen you, and he will do the work. You have to be willing to trust him and to be obedient, and he will do the work. So is Jesus the purpose that marks you, and is he the pattern that molds you? Keep going in, in, in the next chapter, chapter 3. Jesus should be the prize of our lives. Look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had... I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Look at what he says there in verse 8 of chapter 3. The loss of all things and count them as rubbish. What would cause you to count something as rubbish? Something of immense value would cause you to count something as rubbish, right? I, uh, I, I, I figured out that grandparents, your spiritual gift is spoiling like, that's your spiritual gift. That, it might be spoiling. It also might be giving them a ton of sugar and then sending them home. That's really fun, too. But, but it's spoiling is probably what it is. My, uh, my mother-in-law um, uh, works at Target, um, which is great and terrible all at the same time. And so, like, she, you know, she exercises that discount. And so if, she, if they go see Gigi, they're getting a toy. All right, like it's going to be a good day. And so I, I've certainly made the mistake of um, I'm, a, I'm the king of the Dollar Tree. I don't know if you know that about me, but you're all blessed, my subjects. Like, I, like that's my thing. Like if I can pick my kids up from Mother's Day out or something, and, and if I can say to them, hey, you want to go to the store with Daddy? Right? Like they know where they're going. They're going to the tree. And I love going to the tree, and I feel like, I feel like a baller, and I just walk in, and I'm like, oh, you want that? Get it. And they're like, oh, you want that too? get it, right? And I just, I love it, and I just feel awesome, and going to the candy aisle, anything you want, guys, right? Like, let's do it, and I just feel incredible, right? But I have certainly made this mistake. I have forgotten that later that night, they're going to see Gigi, right? And so they walk out of the Dollar Tree with their little, like, inflatable Spider-Man hammer thing that is going to pop very quickly, and they walk out of there with that and, like, a Pez dispenser, and, like, I'm just the greatest dad in the world, and then, they, and then I realize, oh, no, they're going to see Gigi tonight, and Gigi's working, and so, like, they get, they get to Gigi's house, and she, like, gets that Target bag out, and then whatever dad has is garbage. It is rubbish at that point, right? It's like, oh, dad, thanks for giving me garbage, and they throw it away immediately. They drop it. They forget it exists, and they're going to get whatever Gigi has. Why? Because what Gigi gives them is a of immense value in comparison to what I have given them. And Paul says, everything I had is rubbish in comparison to knowing Jesus. And you say, well, what did he have? If you go back, if you want to read it yourself, look verse 3 through 6. He had status. He had power. He had a career. He had his, his, his family standing. He's had all the good that he's ever done. And he said, it's all garbage in comparison to knowing Jesus. 
That's treasuring Jesus. That's seeing him as a prize. And nothing has his affection more than Jesus. And look at what Paul says in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So here, right here in this verse, we see the difference between purpose and treasure. Purpose marks you, right? But treasure motivates you. So purpose marks your actions. My actions are marked by honoring Jesus. That's what I want my actions to do. But my treasure motivates my actions. I honor Jesus with my actions because I value him more than I value myself or anything else, right? So, so my, my actions are marked by my purpose, which is to make him happy. But, but my treasure, Jesus, that, that value, uh, that motivates me. I want to make him happy because he's valuable to me. He's most valuable to me. And that's incredibly important because without that value, your faithfulness to your purpose, it will wane, right? What did Jesus say there in verse 12? I press on, or what did Paul say? I press on to make it my own. Press on gives us a picture of what? Of, of facing resistance. It's not always going to be easy following Jesus. And if you don't value him as, and see him as worthy and see him as, as way more valuable than everything else, then, then you, your purpose there, it's going to wane. It's going to suffer, right? Because when it gets tough, what are you going to do? I'm out of this. I'm done with this for now. When it gets easy, Jesus, give me a call. I'll start following you again, right? But you have to value him mainly. So what keeps you from treasuring Jesus? What steals your affection, right? Paul says, my treasure is you. My affection is set on you above all things. What for you steals that away? What steals your affection, competes for your affection as you try to love the Lord Jesus? And I can't answer that for you. That's specific to you. We're all individual people. People in here, we like all kinds of different things, right? Like I like music. Some of you guys like country music, right? You know what I mean? Like we're all really different. Like some of you are really into to sports, right? Like you like football and stuff like that. Some of you are not into sports. Like Soccer, you know what I mean? Like, and so we we have different likes and we have different dislikes. So I, I don't know. I don't know what drives you. I don't know what 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 makes you passionate, right? So what is it though? What is it that competes for your affection? Is it a hobby? Is it a relationship? Is it money? Is it your career? Is it a possession or a dream or a goal? I think a way to figure it out is to ask yourself this: Who or what? do you consider the most? Now, I could say this. I could say, where do you spend your time and your money and your energy? Because that's where your affections are, and that's true, but I want to take it a step further. Who or what do you consider the most? And here's what I mean. Like, in the way you spend your money, who or what do you consider the most in that decision? In the way you spend your time, who or what do you consider the most? In the way you treat others, who or what do you consider the most? When you make a major decision of any kind, who or what do you consider the most? Who has your affections, right? I had a friend of mine uh, growing up who, um, he got a truck. And, like, he didn't just get a truck. Like, he, like, he, like, got a truck. You know what I mean? Like he's one of those guys, like he loved his truck. And I would say that, that it competed with his affections for the Lord Jesus. And I would say that because he flat out told me that, that it competed. And you know why? It was because he considered that truck in everything that he did more than anything else, right? When it came to the way he spent his money, he considered, if I spend my money here, what will, like, like, will I have enough money to spend it on my truck, right? And, 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 all, and all of these things, he considered about his time. Well, yeah, I could do this, but you know what? I don't know if I've given enough time to, to working on my truck. Will I have enough time to go drive my truck? 
truck, like through the mud. And I'm thinking, you know, we have streets now. You don't have to drive in the mud anymore. But for some reason, he wanted to do that. And so again, like he considered that the most. And I think that will help you figure out where your treasure is, what you truly value. Not just where you spend your time and your money and your energy. Yes, that's true. But also, who or what do you consider the most in your lives? And if it's not God, ask him to redirect that. Ask him to redirect his affections, your affections back um, on him. Let's go uh, fourthly. So, so is Jesus your purpose that marks you, your pattern that molds you, and your treasure that motivates you? Fourthly, Jesus should be the power of our lives. Look at verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Trust his power to provide for you. And how do we do that? Well, it just told us. In verse four, it says, rejoice in the Lord always. In the Lord always. That's super awesome. I hear people say all the time, like, rejoice always. Well, well, like always? Rejoice in the Lord always means that I can because it means that I can rejoice in every circumstance. Maybe not about every circumstance, but in every circumstance because I can rejoice in the Lord at any time, right? Like I might not be able to rejoice at the diagnosis of cancer, but I can rejoice in the Lord at that moment, right? I can rejoice that he's with me. I can rejoice that he's in control. I can rejoice in his comfort. I can rejoice in, 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 in the fact that this body right here, this is not the end for me. I have a future with him. I might not be able to rejoice that I just lost my job, but I can rejoice in the Lord in that moment, right? So again, when we do that, it reminds us of his power. It reminds us that, you know what, what I'm dealing with right now, it's not as big as him, right? It's not as powerful as him. It's not as worthy of my time, of my energy thinking about as he is. And then after we rejoice in the Lord, bring everything to him. What does it say? In prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. So rejoice and then ask him and thank him. And then you can trust his power to provide for you. Well, provide what? Like, like spiritual stuff? Like provide what? Look at verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Every need. Yep. Physical? Yes. Emotional? Yes. Relational? Yes. Spiritual? Yes. Everything that, he's, that he thinks you need this, he will provide for you. Everything, right? And I think the best way to figure out if you're trusting his power or not is to ask yourself one question. What's your response to need? What's your response to need? Whether it's your need or someone else's, what is your response? Is your response to rejoice in the Lord? Like, no matter what, I'm going to keep rejoicing in the Lord. You know what? I'm going to go to him. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to him. I'm going to thank him for what I have, and I'm going to ask him for what I don't, right? Is that your response? Or... Are you a worrier? Anybody in here a worrier, right? You know what I'm talking about? You're a worrier? Yeah. Maybe that's your response. Are you, are you the type of person who, you're a fixer, right? You're a fixer? A lot of us guys, that's exactly how we are. It's something that, that like, like my wife has had to just really just incredibly be patient with me because she'll come to me and just be like, this really upsets me. And I'm like, well, stop being upset. Let's fix it, right? And, and that's not necessarily what she wants. I've learned that, right? But are you a fixer? Is that your first response? When you hear of a problem, you go, what can I do about it, right? Are you a fixer? Or, or, or do you call someone, right? Are you looking for somebody else to come help you? Or, or maybe you just do nothing. You just ignore it. You're that type of person. You know what I mean? Like, there's a major crisis. I'm gonna go take a nap now, right? Like, maybe that's you. Maybe you're that type of person. But I think when you ask that question of yourself, what do I do? What is my response to need? Whether it's big need, little need, whether it's for me or somebody else, if your response is anything other than 
going to the Lord. Like, I'm going to ask him. I'm going to seek him first. I'm going to thank him, and I'm going to rejoice in him. If you don't rejoice, if you can't rejoice in the Lord, if that's hindered, if you don't go to him, then I would venture to say that whatever area of your life that is, wherever your response is different than that, that you're probably not relying on God's power for that part of your life. And it could be all of your life, but you know what? It could be specific. It could just be with, like, with school. You know, maybe it's a school issue and you say, you know what, I can handle it. Here's what I got to do, right? Or, or maybe it's with your home life or career and you say, you know what, I'm a worrier. I'm just going to hold on to this. It makes me feel good. I'm in control of my worry. I can do that. I'm just going to sit here. I'm going to worry about it, right? And I want you to see the result of trusting in his power, of, of having that response to all need, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust him. I'm going to ask him. I'm going to thank him. I'm going to rejoice in him. I'm going to let him deal with it. Here's the result. Look at verse 7. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. I was uh, recently, in this past year, I say recently, in 2014, uh, I was praying with somebody, and they, they had a huge financial need, like giant financial need. And we were praying together, and, and, and I was like, what are you going to do? And he was like, I'm going to trust the Lord. And I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, well, what are you going to do? Right? And he's like, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust the Lord. Like, I'm rejoicing in the Lord. I'm going to keep asking him for what I need. I'm going to keep thanking him for what I have. I'm going to trust in the Lord. And I was like, what? Right? He had this peace that I guess the only way to describe it is it surpassed all understanding. Does that sound familiar? Right? Like, I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around it. I was like, are you serious right now? Like, this is a giant. And he's like, yeah. And, oh, and by the way, everybody, now we've got hindsight. Like, yeah, it worked out. The Lord provided. Like, he's faithful. He does what he always does, right? Isn't that incredible? But, like, it, get, it gave him that peace. And you say, you know what? I don't even know what that peace looks like, you know? Well, Paul does. Look at verse 10 of chapter 4. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you've, received, you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So trusting the Lord in your power gives you this ability, trusting the Lord's power gives you this ability to be content in all circumstances. So as we try to live a Jesus-centered life, is Jesus your purpose that marks you? Is he the pattern that molds you? Is he your treasure that motivates you? And is he your power that strengthens you? I want to pray for us. Lord Jesus, my prayer for my brothers and sisters is that as they evaluate themselves at this time of year and they're honest with themselves, that when they, they, they look at where they are, they would, they would look and see, are, are you really in charge? Like, are you really at the center of their lives? Is everything they do marked by a love for you, marked by wanting to make you happy mainly? Is everything marked by you? Is everything, is their life molding to a pattern that follows you? Is, is their life changing regularly to, to look more and more like what you want it to look like? Are they, are they motivated by, by you? Are you their prize? Are their affections set solely on you. And Lord, are they trusting your power or their power in their lives? Lord, for my brothers and sisters, my prayer is simple. Take whatever we heard today, take your word here in Philippians and just, and just 
bring it directly to where we are right now. There are people struggling to trust your power. Lord, like, deal with that in them today. Give them the courage and the clarity to, as they face anxiety, to rejoice in you, to bring it to you, to thank you, and to trust you. There are brothers and sisters in here, Lord, who there are areas of their lives that aren't marked by making you happy. They're still holding on to them. Lord, like, break their grip. No, help them see the joy of letting go of what they think they want and what you know that they need. So, Lord, just do your work today for my brothers and the sisters in this room as we look forward to this year. Help us be Jesus-centered people. May our words and our actions and our attitudes make you happy. May our affections be firmly set on you. May our trust be firmly placed in you. May we see everything else around us for what it is. It's weak. It's insignificant. It's it's not enough. It's not sufficient. Help us be Jesus-centered for your glory and our joy. Lord, I also realize that there are people in this room who currently aren't my brothers and sisters who don't follow you. That, Lord, like they, they, okay, they come to church. Sure, maybe. They know the Christmas story. Fantastic. They know you died on the cross. Great. The devil knows that. The demons know that. But, Lord, they haven't, like, really followed you. They haven't asked for your forgiveness. They haven't surrendered their life to you. They haven't said, you know what? My life's going to be marked by Jesus. I'm going to follow him now. Lord, for those people that I just described, would you give them the courage that right now where they are, they would just tell you that, that they'd make that change right now. Say, Lord, I want to follow you today. Forgive me for not. Forgive me for living my way. Forgive me for everything. Make me new. I want to follow you today. Give them the courage to say that to you right now. And give them the confidence to know that you've forgiven them. If that's the attitude of their heart, you've forgiven them. You've made them yours. That, Lord, they will now live with you here. And when they leave this earth, they'll live with you forever. They're saved. They're saved from themselves. They're saved from their sin. They're saved from the wrath against sin. They're forgiven forever. So, God, we thank you. Lord, as we sing, may I honor you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.